This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. On Tuesday, September 22nd, the ACLU of Maryland hosted our annual Constitution Day event, this year entitled Let People Vote. We had such a great time talking about voting rights and the 2020 election that we decided to reshare this discussion as a special episode of our Thinking Freely podcast. We hope you enjoy. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this evening um, for Constitution Day 2020. My name is Amy Cruz, and I am the legal program manager, uh, as well as the director of the ACLU of Maryland's election protection campaign. But first, we have a very special message from our executive director, Dana Vickers-Shelley. Good evening. I'm Dana Vickers-Shelley, Executive Director of the ACLU of Maryland. It's a pleasure for me to welcome you this evening to our Constitution Day event, Let People Vote. Tonight, you'll have an opportunity to hear from distinguished panelists and experts on voting rights, both in Maryland and nationally. It's a pleasure also for me to welcome our viewers who are joining us via Zoom and Facebook. Voting rights is a major priority for the ACLU of Maryland, as it is the cornerstone of our democracy and the fundamental right upon which all our civil liberties rest. At the ACLU of Maryland, voting rights is also a strategic priority for us. We are working toward having an election infrastructure that guarantees universal suffrage and robust access to the ballot. We want to see an expansion of the right to vote to 100% of incarcerated citizens. We want to see all election systems in Maryland that are in compliance with the Voting Rights Act. And finally, by 2024, we're working toward having an improved voting infrastructure in majority black jurisdictions. Our panelists tonight, Dale Ho, director of the National ACLU's Voting Rights Project, Joanne Antoine, Executive Director of Common Cause Maryland, and Monica Cooper, Executive Director of Maryland Justice Project, will be joined by my colleague, Amber Taylor, who will moderate this evening. Amber is our digital communication strategist and an expert in voting rights. She's also the host of our podcast, Thinking Freely. This is a serious racial justice issue because although only 29% of Marylanders are Black, 69% of Marylanders who have been imprisoned are Black. Dating back to the racist Jim Crow era, state felony disenfranchisement laws were created to prevent Americans with felonies from voting. After the Civil War, there was a concerted effort to incarcerate thousands of newly freed slaves, and these laws were designed to weaken the political power of Black people. Although the laws have been changed, people who are inside are still unable to vote. Voting is the cornerstone of our democracy, and we want to be sure in the election coming up that everyone knows that they have the right to vote and that we are expanding access so that we can make sure that we let people vote. Thank you so much again for joining us. I hope you have a great evening. Good night. 
I want to again thank uh, all of you for joining us this evening and to all of our members, donors, and activists who support our work. The ACLU literally cannot do this work without you. And I also want to bring Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg into our thoughts tonight as we both mourn her passing and remember her contributions to voting rights. During this election season, and it is a season, the right to vote matters more than ever. I wanna take a minute to tell you about our election protection campaign. The ACLU of Maryland launched the election protection campaign in 2004, and it has operated every presidential and gubernatorial election since then. The core of the program is threefold. First, we seek to empower people through information about the right to vote, voting in elections in Maryland, and the barriers that continue to exist for many people. Two, we monitor elections and voters' experience across the state for potential problems, complaints, and mostly to prevent problems and offer solutions. And third, we have an election protection hotline where we answer questions, provide individualized assistance, and investigate issues. As I'm sure you're not surprised, this year has been incredibly challenging, and we have taken a number of actions to demand that Marylanders get the safe, accessible, and equitable elections they deserve. But there's also been some bright spots this year. One of those things is the amount of work being done in coalition and the incredible people and organizations that have come together to protect voting rights and keep our elections safe. Two of those individuals and organizations are on the panel tonight. For more information about our election protection campaign, please visit our website, which we will put up on the screen and in the chat during the discussion. And for more about the coalition work, please stay tuned as you'll hear a lot more about that later. And now a little bit about your host tonight, Amber Taylor. Amber Taylor is the digital communication strategist for the ACLU of Maryland. She manages our video production, social media, and much more. And she also contributes to much of our outreach efforts. Amber joined the ACLU in 2017 and has completely transformed our digital communications in countless ways, many of which are now as critical as ever as we rely almost entirely on virtual communications as we are this evening. Among the many creative, bold, and innovative projects she's known for, she is the writer, producer, and host of our weekly podcast, Thinking Freely. Amber's voice, both in the podcast and within the ACLU, is captivating and inspiring. For this reason, I'm excited to introduce to you Amber Taylor, who will be our moderator for this evening's conversation. Amber, take it away. Thanks so much, Amy. I really appreciate that warm introduction. Hello, everyone, and welcome to tonight's event, 2020 Constitution Day, Let People Vote. We're so excited to have y'all here tonight as we talk about this critical election and making sure that everyone has access to the ballot. Also want to give a special shout out to any of the listeners uh, of the Thinking Freely podcast. Um, appreciate all your support um, as we celebrate our one year anniversary. So thank y'all. Tonight, you're gonna to be hearing from each of our distinguished speakers. You're all in for a real treat. They're all experts. Um, and then you'll be, then I'll be asking everyone questions um, about voting rights and making sure that people have access to the ballot. 
And then we'll be hearing from questions from people like you. But first, I need to introduce our distinguished guests. The first I want to bring up is Dale Ho. Dale is the director of the National ACLU's Voting Rights Project, and he supervises the ACLU's voting rights litigation nationwide. Dale has active cases in over a dozen states across the country. His cases have included the Department of Commerce versus New York, successfully challenging the inclusion of citizen questions on the census, which he argued in the Supreme Court, and Fish versus Kobach, successfully challenging the documentation requirements for voter registration in Kansas, which noted election law scholar Richard Hansen has described as the most significant voting rights case of the century. And then we have Monica Cooper. Monica is the director of the Maryland Justice Project. Monica is an advocate, an activist, and a freedom fighter. She is the co-founder of the Maryland Justice Project and the former executive director of Alpha Justice. In addition, she leads the Baltimore affiliates of the National Council of Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls, which boasts membership from more than 30 states. And not last, but definitely not least, Joanne Antoine. Joanne is the executive director of Common Cause Maryland, where she leads the organization's policy and campaigns and builds its capacity. Joanne has also worked at the Democracy Initiative, where she helped to engage local, state, and national organizations in coalitions and campaigns in Maryland. She has also worked as an organizer, a trainer, and a strategist in numerous campaigns in the US and in Haiti. Want to welcome all y'all tonight. Thank you so much for being here. So let me first start off the conversation with you, Dale. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about the late and the great Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. As you well know, she believes strongly in the right to vote for all. Can you talk to us about the impact that the 2012 Voting Rights Act decision has on us today? I think Dale might be muted. Oh, I'm sorry, can you hear me now? Yes, we can hear you now, Dale. My apologies, so sorry about that. Um, uh, thank you for that question, Amber. I, I, I was saying that Justice Ginsburg's passing is obviously quite sad for all of us. She was a champion for civil rights uh, across the board, including uh, the right to vote. Um, and, uh, you know, while, while it is a sad moment for all of us, I think those of us who are in the ACLU family are maybe particularly sad as she was um, the founder and director of the Women's Rights Project at the National ACLU office before um, she was elevated to a, a judge. So it really does feel like losing a member of the family in a way. Um, she was a champion of the right to vote. Um, in 2013, she wrote a famous dissent um, in a case Shelby County versus Holder in which the Supreme Court by a five to four decision um, immobilized the most important part of the Voting Rights Act, um, the um, pre-clearance provisions, which required states and counties that had the worst histories of discrimination to obtain federal approval before they made changes to their voting laws to make sure that those laws weren't discriminatory and didn't have the effect intended or otherwise of suppressing participation of voters of color. 
Um, one of the things that the Supreme Court noted in its decision was that instances of overt discrimination in voting seem to have been in decline over the past few decades. But that was, of course, precisely because, in large measure, we had such a strong and potent Voting Rights Act. And Justice Ginsburg wrote in what I think is one of the most memorable phrases in a Supreme Court decision over the last 10 years, um, that throwing away, that getting rid of this part of the Voting Rights Act, the preclearance provisions, uh, was like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you weren't getting wet. And um, those words proved prescient because after that decision, the downpour came and we have been fighting against a wave of laws that suppress the vote, particularly in communities of color um, ever since that decision. Thank you so much, Dale. Um, I did also want to switch gears a bit and ask uh, Joanne to give us a brief um, introduction and also talk a bit about some voting rights and um, and all the many initiatives that you are working on because I know it's a busy season for you right now. If you can, um, we'll have about 10 minutes for each person to give an intro um, and talk about uh, the work that y'all are doing. So Joanne, I'd like to kick it off with you. Thank you, Amber, and thank you to the ACLU of Maryland team for having me on today. Um, again, I'm Joanne from Common Cause Maryland. Um, we are a nonpartisan watchdog organization that's been working in the state and in a number of other states um, for 50 years now. Um, you know, we work on a number of good governance reforms. Voting rights is, you know, the core or the heart of it, right? That's why I came to Common Cause. That and campaign finance reform, wanting to make sure, you know, that women who wanted to run for office um, and so forth, that they had resources um, and that they were able to compete, co run competitive races. Um, now, I'd say COVID obviously, um, you know, was unexpected, right? It has impacted every aspect of our lives. And even though Maryland has shifted to phase three, um, you know, when um, COVID first hit, I want to say in March, you know, we were ramping uh, down session, you know, we were in the House of Delegates. Things were closing. Things were closing down, and you know, I remember it was ACL, it was ACLU actually, and Charlie Carter, um, and so forth. We were in a hallway, you know, and we realized, okay, the elections in April, we need to act swiftly, right? It's probably going to be delayed, um, or there's going to be some major change that uh, leaves voters at risk of being disenfranchised. Um, and that's where our larger coalition called Everyone Votes Maryland uh, came to play. Uh, now, this coalition was formed in 2017. Um, ACLU was a core founder of that coalition. Um, collectively, we were able to pass same-day registration, um, automatic voter registration, and it was only right that obviously we come together um, to navigate uh, voting amid COVID. And I think um, we you know, during the primary special election, we accomplished as much as we could, right? Um, obviously, it was the first time that Maryland was implementing a vote by mail system really quickly. Um, you know, we knew that um, not having enough in-person options, for example, right? When you, If you think of the special election, it was one vote center per county in that in, you know, in the late Congressman Cummings uh, district. And even in the primary, it was only four vote centers um, per county, which just isn't enough when you're implementing a program, when you know that people are 
people move, right? Um, people at risk are just at risk of not getting their mail on time and so forth. So um, we unfortunately experienced a lot of issues in the primary. Um, but even with those issues, we uh, saw an overwhelming uh, increase in participation uh, throughout the state. Even a jurisdiction like Baltimore City uh, came out with the highest turnout um, in that election. Um, so the coalition continues to work collectively as we're going into November. Um, you know, I'm going to quickly walk through some of the changes, but I think the biggest thing to remember here is that um, ballots are not being automatically mailed to you the same way that they were in the primary. Um, you now have to request them, um, which unfortunately adds an extra hurdle um, for the voters who want to um, limit exposure to the virus. So really quickly, um, it's National Voter Registration Day, right? We've been out registering voters all day long. Um, you know, if you plan on voting, if you are eligible to vote, right, you are a citizen, you are a resident of Maryland, um, your 16-year-olds 16, 16 can register, but you will be 18 um, by election day, um, and you are not currently incarcerated for a felony. So you are home, um, even if you have a felony, you are home, uh, you might be inside serving time for a misdemeanor on pretrial, you have the right to vote, right? So what we want you to do this evening, um, you know, is one, if you're not registered to vote, go online, visit elections.maryland.gov uh, slash 2020 um, and register to vote online. Now, if you do not have a state ID, um, you don't have a license, you don't have a Maryland MVA uh, official identification, you unfortunately will not be able to use the online system. Um, so what you'll have to do is download the form uh, that's available if you visit this link. Um, it's available in Spanish and numerous other languages um, and you'd be you'd mail it on your own to the local board. If you don't have access to a um, printer, you can contact your local board and they will mail one to you, or you can contact one of our organizations and we'll get it to you as well. I think the only other major piece to remember with voter registration, and I tell folks this all the time, that when you go vote in person, if you update your address, you will be asked to cast a provisional vote. Um, and while provisional vote ballots are counted, right, if you are found to be eligible to vote and you haven't voted already, we want you to avoid having to do that altogether. So again, take time today, register to vote. Um, now, after you are registered to vote, I think the biggest thing you need to do is make sure you have a plan. I know you hear this all the time. Folks are like, get vote ready. It's even more important right now um, because you need to decide whether or not you want to vote using a mail-in ballot or you want to go in person. Now, this is critical because if you are using a mail-in ballot, if you request your ballot, you can't go or you can go in person. But if you do, you will be asked again to vote on a provisional ballot, right? So it's important that if you've made your request for a ballot, you stick with that plan. Um, if there's ballots have not started going out yet, they, they go out, um, they start to go out September 24th. It is rolling. It's all based on when your request was made. Um, I've been telling people if it's October 7th or October 10th and you've heard nothing, nothing has come in the mail, contact your local board right away. You want to confirm that your request was received and that your ballot is on the way. So biggest piece here, if you make a plan, you know, stick to that plan. If your plan is to vote by mail, we want you to um, 
continue down that process. And I'll, I'll go into pieces why. And again, if you, for whatever reason, it's just close to election day, early voting has started, your ballot just has not arrived, no one is able to assist you and you're left with no choice but to go vote in person, which you should do, you know, um, knowing that uh, provisional ballots are counted. You know, a lot of times we think they aren't, but once it's proven that you have not voted your requested ballot, your provisional ballot will be counted. So again, your voice still will be heard in the election process, but we just want to make sure again, you stick to your plan. And the other big thing, right? So you've made your, you've chosen your plan and your plan is to uh, vote by mail. What you want to do is request your ballot ASAP. Um, your, your request needs to be received by October 20th. And I want to re stress this received by, if you mail in your request on October 18th, it probably won't get to the local board by the 20th. And your request will not be accepted. It'll be rejected. And we're not clear on whether or not the local boards will be, you know, notifying voters that their uh, request was not received on time. So if you plan on voting by mail, uh, again, elections.maryland.gov, if you have a state ID, if you don't have one, uh, there's a request form that you can download. They were also mailed to um, most all voters, um, you know, it has a little purple stripe on the envelope. And even if it wasn't addressed to you, if you open it up, you'll see that there isn't a name on there. So you can use um, that mail-in request form that came, you know, if, if you're in an apartment like me and it came for the person that resided here before me. I think some other myths that we just kind of like to dispel, you know, I know there's a lot of concern, particularly amongst um, my community, you know, Black voters, right? You just don't trust the process. You want to go in person. Person. you're hearing about all these things, you know, delays and so forth. People are talking about ballot harvesting. Vote by mail is a pr process that has been used for years uh, for in over 33 states. Maryland has had no excuse um, uh, voting, um, no excuse request for absentee voting or mail-in voting um, for years as well. It's a paper-based system that is secure. I think there's a lot of benefits to voting by mail. You get your ballot, you stay at home, you can visit any place you, you know, any place where you get voter information and uh, just really take your time researching, especially the ballot questions that are that are on there. Um, and it's convenient. You know, a lot of times we hear from voters where even though we have nine days of in-person voting, the person who works 16 hours a day just isn't able to get to a vote center, right? Now you don't have to worry about that um, and you're limiting your exposure to COVID-19. This is a lot, I'm trying to condense a lot, but you know, I think some other pieces, you know, if you are planning to uh, return your ballot by mail, which is fine, right? I know a lot of people, again, have fears and so forth. You're hearing a lot about efforts to uh, delay the mail that is uh, coming and going uh, into the state and, and throughout the country. Um, but we know that your post, your local postman or postwoman, ooh, one minute, okay. So you do not have to worry about um, your, if you plan on mailing your ballot, do it ASAP, right? As soon as it comes, go to your local mailbox and drop it off. But if you're waiting, don't mail it any later than October 27th. There's secure drop boxes available all throughout the state. Use one, um, it's monitored 24 seven, pickups twice a day. If you requested an electronic ballot, that cannot be returned by email. It will be rejected. Um, other pieces to remember, if you don't have to use it, 
avoid it if possible. You know, it really is created for those who need to use electronic uh, voting uh, devices from home. Um, but again, if you are just keeping in mind, you need a printer um, envelope and so forth. And I think the biggest piece here, I'm gonna wrap it up is making sure you sign your return envelope. You don't want to go through this entire process and it reaches the local board and your envelope does not have a signature on it. It will be rejected and there's no no um, guarantee that the local boards will be working to cure these ballots. So sign it um, and make sure that it's received before the 8 p.m. deadline on election day. So I will wrap it up there. I think again, in-person available, in-person uh, voting begins the 26th through um, November 2nd, uh, there'll be a number of early vote locations and then obviously on election day and there's assistance for you if you need it. So I'm happy to answer questions at the end if needed. <laughs> thank you. No, thank you, Joanne. And trust, we will be giving um, all the types of voter vote information so no one will be walking away not knowing how to cast their ballot and how to vote in the 2020 election. The next, I wanted to go to uh, another request, I guess, Monica Cooper. Monica, if you can talk a bit about the work that you're doing to make sure that a population that often gets overlooked in when it comes to voting um, it is particularly like formerly incarcerated and currently incarcerated people. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Oh, yes. Um, my name is Monica Cooper. I am the executive director of the Maryland Justice Project. And we have been working with the Expand the Ballot Initiative with Common Cause, um, ACLU, Out for Justice, and uh, several organizations. Um, one of the reasons why I am uh, really uh, putting everything that I have into this work is one, I am a formerly incarcerated person. Two, I am a person that buys into our system of governance and the way that uh, the right to vote is established. Um, so I also ran for public office. So I'm not only a formerly incarcerated person, I'm a person that believes in uh, redemption. I'm a person that believes in second chances. And I am a person that believes that the one right a person should never lose is their right to vote. Because once you lose your right to vote, then you are powerless. You cannot push back against those forces that are pushing to, against you. And um, I know what that feels like. I, I know what it feels like to uh, be away for years and uh, want to come home and to be able to participate in this process and not be able to. So I want uh, other people not like myself to be able to uh, participate in the um, process. I um, would like for the viewing public and the listeners to kind of um, take note of what's happening in Florida. What's happening in Florida is unfortunately you have 35,000 people who are already registered and the potential to have 350,000 people registered to vote. But because of politics, these folks who are formerly incarcerated are being kept from the polls. As an African-American woman, my grandmother and the people who came before her were subjected to some pretty horrible things to keep them away from the polls. So that's another reason why I am why, why I do this work. I think it's um I think it's really important. And I think now more than ever, people need to make sure that their voices are heard. Because at the end of the day, everything that impacts 
our lives begins at the polls, whether it's climate change, whether it's mass incarceration, whether it's a woman's right to choose, regardless of what it is that impact our lives as Americans, it starts on election day and it begins at the polls. So it's really important that all Americans have that right to vote and that we also push back on the precision like efforts year after year after year after year they are people who strategically plan how to gut the Civil Rights Act of 1965. None of these things just happen in a vacuum. And it's everyday voters who are kind of unaware of what's going on until it actually happened. It's almost like a comet headed towards Earth and nobody is aware that this comet is coming. So that's how I see the uh, year after year and each election cycle, the right to vote and the efforts to suppress the vote gets more and more insidious. So again, I am also here to make sure that people who are not, uh, I love politics, so I pay attention to the stuff. That's, that's what I like, kind of geeky in that way. So I'm, I'm watching all day, every day. And yes, I will take a, a, a law book and read it from front to back. I'm not a lawyer, but I like the stuff. But there are some people who are very much unaware that the lack of voting or you not being at the poll could cost you your life. You could be subjected to one of those persons, unfortunately, that have passed away from COVID, your grandmother, your father. So all of these things that are coming into play that's affecting people who are just not people who are not political junkies like myself that don't pay attention to you know the politics of things and the effects that each election cycle will have on future generations. And it is kind of fearful to be honest with you. There's an anxiety that I experience and people who I know that are incarcerated in Maryland who are very fearful that COVID will come through that prison and wipe out that population. So it is, it is important because you know, the decisions impact for many incarcerated people and people who are incarcerated. So why not make sure they have the vote? We deserve to vote like everybody else. I don't think that was 10 minutes. But I am. No, but I love that you're short, sweet, and to the point. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I, I, don't have slides. I don't have slides like Joanne, you know, but hey. <laughs> you're totally fine. This is off the cuff. We're just having a conversation and you know the issue very well. Um, did want to uh, just uh, did want to also ask uh, Dale Ho um, to, to speak a little bit about voting rights um, and also from like the national perspective because um, little birdie told me you're very busy this time of year. Election years are always busy for the ACLU's voting rights project, and this year is no exception. I'm like Monica; I don't have um, slides either, um, <laughs> but I'll I'll do my best. Um, I just want to give folks a little bit of an overview of what the ACLU has been doing around the country on voting rights, in particular with um, our litigation, um, which doesn't capture everything the ACLU does. We have a great, you know, know your rights page. We have a, a, a page on educating people on how to make use of all the forms of voting beyond in-person on election day. Um, it's our Let People Vote page, aclu.org slash voter. It has the, uh, it's a 50 state resource for um, 
vote by mail requirements in every state and we're going to update it in a couple of weeks with early voting information and our um, political advocacy departments around the country working with affiliates to advocate for um, um, more accessible um, voting rules. Um, I'm just going to talk about our litigation, uh, which I work on mostly. Um, election years are busy years for the Voting Rights Project. We normally will file anywhere from three to six new cases in the spring and early summer. Um, this year has been unlike anything I've ever seen before because the pandemic has scrambled everything. It's made election administration harder. It's made rules that ordinarily are maybe a nuisance or a burden, might stop a few people from voting, might result in a few ballots getting tossed. It's made um, those kinds of rules um, take on new significance. And we have been racing around the clock to just try to make sure that everyone can vote safely this year. Um, I said we normally file three to six new cases in the spring and the summer. Um, since the pandemic began, the Voting Rights Project and ACLU affiliates have filed 24 cases in 19 states and Puerto Rico, just, just trying to make it easier for um, people to vote safely and not risk their health in this election. That's on top of all the other work that we normally do. Monica mentioned the situation in Florida with people being disenfranchised because they um, have legal financial obligations still associated with their sentences, finished with parole, finished with probation, finished with all the custodial parts of their terms, but being disenfranchised because they can't afford to pay a fee. Um, we litigated that, we took it to trial, we got a great trial judgment only to last um, two weeks ago, get reversed in a heartbreaker in the 11th circuit. But we've been working on all those kinds of cases, all the kinds of things we normally do. And on top of that, two dozen cases related to COVID. Um, wh what have we been doing um, related to COVID? I just wanna talk about that for a second. Um, we have been concentrating on opening access to voting by mail. Maryland's got a great system, but not other, every, other, every state is not so lucky. Um, 16 states normally require voters to have some form of excuse to vote by mail. Um, you can't just um, want to vote by mail. You have to be away from your home or you have to have an illness or disability that makes it physically impossible for you to go to the polls. Um, we've advocated on that around the country. We've sued on it around the country. Four states, Alabama, Connecticut, Kentucky, and Missouri, all eliminated their excuse requirements for November for voting absentee after we sued them. So in all four of those states, we sued and they responded by saying everyone can vote by mail um, um, due to um, the pandemic. Um, two other states, Mississippi and Tennessee, as well as Puerto Rico, didn't go that far, but they um, expanded the range of people who could vote by mail. So believe it or not, in Puerto Rico, um, people over 60 couldn't do it just on the basis of age. That's different now, thanks to a, a lawsuit that we filed. In Tennessee, we brought a case on behalf of a two-time cancer survivor who was immunocompromised. So was his wife. The state said, you can't vote by mail because you are physically capable of going to a polling location. We sued them. And after we sued, um, the Tennessee Supreme Court ruled that Anyone who has a condition that makes them particularly vulnerable to complications or death because of um, uh, contracting COVID can vote by mail. Not everyone, but at least our most vulnerable um, fellow citizens can. So we've been working on that issue around the country. Um, the second thing that we've been doing is trying to make sure that unnecessary barriers to voting by mail 
get eliminated. Um, about 12 states require voters to actually have someone watch you fill out your absentee ballot as a witness and then sign your absentee ballot um, in order for that ballot to be counted. Some states even require you to get it notarized before you um, do that. Now that's a problem in any election, it's worthless, it doesn't enhance election security and it results in thousands of ballots getting tossed in every election. But right now, when we're all being advised to minimize social contact, to stay at home if we can, um, not to break social distancing, that requirement takes on a completely new significance. Um, failure to obtain a witness signature was the number one reason why um, absentee ballots were rejected during the Wisconsin primary. Over 14,000 absentee ballots there. Um, in North Carolina, which has a similar requirement, um, already um, more than, uh, more than 1,500 ballots have been rejected already um, for lack of a witness signature out of about a million returned. Um, we, um, I'm sorry, out of about 100,000 returned. There have already been a million requested in North Carolina. It would not surprise me for that number to go up to two, two and a half million um, by the time we get um, um, closer to election day. And when you do the math proportionally, you know, one and a half percent of absentee ballots, that might not sound like a lot, but when you're talking about two million absentee ballots getting cast in that state, potentially, you might be looking at 30,000 ballots tossed because of no witness signature. Um, so we have litigated this issue in a number of states. We've gotten positive rulings eliminating witness signature requirements for absentee voting in Minnesota, Rhode Island, um, South Carolina, and Virginia. Um, the state's fighting us on appeal in South Carolina right now, but, I, but for the other three states, those requirements are gone. And we went to trial earlier this month in Alabama and Missouri on um, the exact same issue, and we're eagerly uh, waiting for um, the decisions in those cases. Um, that's just a part of it. Um, we're um, also litigating things like, like a law in Montana, which prohibits um, assisting people with the conveyance of their absentee ballots to a post office or to elections officials. That's something that makes it really hard for people on Native American reservations to vote because they don't receive daily mail service. Some of them don't get mail service at all at their, at their doorstep. Um, we've challenged things like the failure to provide postage in Georgia, and we're currently litigating a uh, practice in Ohio where if the elections officials think your signature on your absentee ballot doesn't match your voter registration file, they just toss your ballot without even telling you, right? So you don't even have an opportunity to contest that and say, that's my ballot. Um, please don't throw that away. Please don't throw my vote away. Um, uh, uh, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> Um, we're hopeful that um, we can get as many of these barriers removed um, over the next few weeks as we can, and then we'll pivot to preparing to preparing for emergencies that may arise uh, once early voting starts and on election day itself. But I just want everyone to know that we are doing everything we can to make sure that everyone who wants to vote can do so without risking their health during the pandemic. Thank you, Dale. And I, I will say that it's, it's encouraging um, seeing like the, it's almost unprecedented amount of people who across country and across the state of Maryland want to figure out how they can exercise their right to vote in this election. Um, you know, we will of course continue to fight to make sure that everyone has access to the ballot, but I'm also happy that there's a demand that, that we're trying to meet as well. Um, so Dale, I did want to ask you um, another question. Um, 
if you can. You know, many people, um, both here in Maryland and across the country, are deeply concerned about the health of our election system and access to the ballot in 2020, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. Some of the things that you mentioned um, in, in your, in your uh, intro uh, earlier. But can you also talk to us about what are some of the important things that people need to do to really make a difference in this election? I think people are right to be concerned. This is going to be a very difficult election to administer. Um, more than half of poll workers in a presidential election typically are over the age of 60. That was true in 2016. And a lot of those folks are gonna be reluctant to volunteer. We've seen poll worker shortages in states around the country um, during the primaries. A lot of locations aren't open, to, that are normally used as polling locations aren't open to the general public. So we've lost a lot of polling places. When you layer on top of that, the fact that the electorate grows every year just because of population growth, that means we're likely to have more voters assigned per polling place than in any election in American history, all at a time when we are facing the worst pandemic in a century and being told, minimize your contact um, with other people. It's a recipe for maybe the hardest election to administer um, since the 1864 presidential election was administered during the Civil War. Um, what can we do about that? Um, the first thing we can do is make the job of elections administrators as easy as possible. And that means voting early if you can, um, doing it by mail if you can, or doing it early in person if you can. We were all told that, you know, when the pandemic hit, we need to flatten the curve. We need to make it easier for healthcare workers to deal with the flood of patients so that um, they're going to get. We need to slow that rate down a little bit. Well, now we need to do the same thing for ballots. If states that aren't accustomed to getting a lot of absentee ballots and they're getting, they're getting more this year than they've ever gotten, get like a crush of those right at the end or a flood of people on election day when we don't have enough poll, polling places and poll workers, it's going to be really hard to make sure that everyone gets through the system um, right and that their ballots are, are counted. Um, so first thing, um, know the rules for voting early and for voting by mail. Like I said, we have a 50 state guide on that, aclu.org slash voter. Push that out to your friends. Encourage your, vote early yourself if you can, either by mail or in person, whatever you're more comfortable with. Encourage your friends to do the same. Um, second thing, and maybe this isn't as big a deal in Maryland partic in particular because of the huge move to vote by mail, but in other states, we're encouraging people to, if you're young and healthy, um, to volunteer to be poll workers. Take um, the place of someone who um, might normally do that, but right now is um, you know, scared to do so because rightfully, because maybe they're in a high risk group. Um, the ACLU of Georgia, for example, after seeing these five hour lines outside of Atlanta during the primary um, has recruited uh, hundreds of people to work as poll workers in the Atlanta area. Um, um, so as voters make your lot, make elections administrators lives easier. And um, if you can pitch in directly by being, becoming an elections administrator and a poll worker, I think there's still time to do that in a number of places. Thank you for the information, Dale. I did also want to ask you, Monica, uh, a couple of questions. First thing I wanted to ask you about was, can you talk to us um, 
about the current voting rights of people who are currently incarcerated and formerly incarcerated in the state of Maryland? Well, as it stands, as I had mentioned in 2016, the, the current law is that once you're released physically, then you have your voting rights restored. You can register to vote or re-register if you're already registered a voter that you can. And uh, the other initiative that uh, Joanne had, uh, had spoke about was the fact that in all 24 of our counties, those folks who are in pretrial are eligible to vote. I think in Prince George's County, it may be about 657 there but it's folks all across the state of Maryland who are eligible to vote, who should have received a request for absentee ballot and should be receiving an absentee ballot. That will be all inclusive. That's the one thing that we are uh, aiming for is to make sure that as we mentioned is let people vote. We want folks to be able to vote. If it's two people in Cecil County, we want those two people to be able to vote. If it's one person, in Harford County. We want that one person to be able to vote because what we do know is that in such a polarized country, these uh, elections are decided by sometimes six and seven votes. I think the current um, Kwasi Fume had mentioned that he had one city council seat in Baltimore with seven votes. It was seven votes that determined whether he would uh, uh, gain that seat. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's important that everybody vote. And those are the things that I do know that's currently on record on the books for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. And what makes it even a bigger tragedy, travesty is that these things are already on the books. It's not like the advocates and the people who are pushing for folks to vote is asking for them to do something different, new, something added. It's already the law. It's already stuff that's on the books. But again, I think that uh, there, there has to be more of a push to force the state board of elections, local uh, boards to actually do what already should have been done anyway. The, um, the idea, man, this Dale is, is full of information. That's another reason why I like participating because I learn a lot. I might be on the panel, but I am a student. And to learn that there are still 12 states where people need a witness, a witness that to, to sign a ballot that is just so antiquated that there are places where you need an excuse to be able to vote by mail. It's um again, you know, being an African-American woman and, and um, knowing the history of, of Black Americans, African-Americans to have to pass a litmus test, to have to find and count the number of jelly beans in a jar, or to have to say how many presidents were there, who was their treasurer, who was the secretary of state. It's like, who the hell, mm, excuse me guys, uh, but who knows that information? So what has happened is there is a heightened sense of American citizens who are paying attention. Children, 12, 15, voters of the future are paying attention because when they come home from school after they finish their, um, school on uh, uh, <laughs> on a computer, virtual learning, they hear their parents talking about voting. They hear their aunties and their uncles. This is, I mean, voting in the elections, it's like I can hear it everywhere you go. So this is a grand opportunity for us to finally cement the rights of voters forever. I know it seems like there's a shift in Supreme Court, 
I know it seems like there's going to be a shift in the country, but one thing we can do is seize this opportunity and this moment and take all of those things that's been on the books from 1847 and change that stuff. People are paying attention. The children and the youth are paying attention. This is our opportunity. Monica, I also wanted to ask you, um, you know, what's it like when you go into, into, into institutions of incarceration and talk to Marylanders about their right to vote? You know, can you just you know, wow. enlighten some people about um, mm. why it means so much to Marylanders behind the, like behind the wall, inside mm. the walls, um, to gain access to the right to vote and to the ballot? Wow. And just when I think I can't get emotional about voting, um, it is a... Uh, it's actually tearful. It, it's, a, um, it's a pretty emotional feeling because the people who are inside, who have made mistakes, who are dealing with not having their children, who are dealing with losing parents, dealing with so much stuff, dealing with drug addiction, dealing with rape. I mean, these people have, I mean, these folks have a lot of issues. And when you're in there, it feels like people have forgotten about you. And when they see somebody that come through the doors that cared enough about them to make sure that they get a ballot, man, trust me, everybody on this panel and everybody that's listening, if we take you inside, <laughs> bring your tissue because that's how emotional it is. It is a really emotional experience to be able to say, hey, you might be in here, but it's people on the outside that's thinking about you. And it's thinking about your voice because you don't have a voice when you're inside. All your rights have been stripped from you. You, you have absolutely no voice and no say as to what's happening with you. So to be able to vote and to be able to say that, you know, I feel like the governor did not handle the COVID experience well, so we need to elect somebody else. I feel like the person, the secretary that's running the Department of Health needs to be replaced. So I'm going to put a governor in place who kind of understand what our needs are because voters are citizens and voters are people who vote because of issues. People who are incarcerated have different issues than some people have, but still they have issues. That's the whole purpose of casting your ballot. The whole purpose of casting your ballot is because you have certain issues that you want to be addressed. But I, I was saying that, you know, that to wrap it up, it, it is highly emotional. It is highly emotional to be able to give somebody the right to vote who feel like their voice doesn't matter. I'm a chatter, Kathy. I'm sorry. I talked a lot. <laughs> That's like all good things. I love when people get passionate about things they care about, particularly voting rights. Um, and then I also wanted to ask Joanne a couple of questions. Um, you fight so hard for the rights to vote for Marylanders. What is the biggest challenge you see right now when it comes to voters making sure that their voices are heard at the ballot box? Oh my God, that's such a difficult question. I mean, I think it's just the lack of um, voter, I, I guess, I don't know what the biggest thing is. So the state is not um, doing robust voter outreach. 
right? I, I know that there is, you know, firms have been hired that are leading this and so forth. But just today, right, we were out in front of markets and you'd be surprised how many voters, and this is not just, you know, black and brown voters. These are white folks that live in Rockville who didn't know that they needed to make a request you know, in order to receive their ballot. They had no idea that there was a deadline, you know, for making this request and so forth. You know, people think their ballots have come already, you know, when ballots haven't gone out yet. So I'd say, you know, it's the, it's just the overall voter confusion. And I think to Dale's point, right, I actually went into a panic as Dale was starting to talk about, you know, in-person voting. You know, we have scaled down, you know, the number of vote centers that we have uh, on election day, right? Um, and I believe throughout early voting in some jurisdictions as well. And, you know, the more that I talk to people, the more that folks are telling me they're not voting by mail, or again, they just didn't get any of this information. And my fear is that everyone is going to end up, you know, going in person, not because they wanted to, but because they have no choice but to. Um, and because you only have you know, you're in St. Mary's and you've only got one vote center, right? And on election day, you've only got three. Um, we're going to see the same thing that we saw during the primary, right? We're going to see long lines, um, people unable to social distance, um, folks who unfortunately have to leave because they've got work. I've got my baby, you know, who's crying in my hand um, and so forth. So I think it's just the overall lack of information and uh, the, you know, the digital divide, right? I think, you know, sometimes the state focuses too much on reaching folks on Twitter and on Facebook and so forth. And while you're reaching me, you're missing my grandma, right? You're missing the new citizen who has limited English and you're choosing to only prioritize Spanish when Montgomery County has so many other languages present. So yeah, I, I think, we need to do more. Like we should be doing a whole lot more to make sure people understand all of their voting options, uh, that when mail comes, it's more easily visible. Um, and that includes even in, when we're talking about local correctional facilities, right? Cause we're sending these packets in. We don't know what the, we know what's in the packets. I have no idea. You know, uh, Amy has actually created the cover letter, but we don't know what the envelope looks like, nothing. And will it be clear to even the folks that work in these facilities that this is for me to hand out, that when the voter receives it, I, that I need to do this quickly because, you know, the, the mail curve or the mail timeline is even longer for me, right? And if I don't get it out before the 13th, I won't be able to participate in the election. So, yeah, we just would be doing a whole lot better uh, to get out information to people who want to vote. And then I also wanted to ask you, um, and I know it's a difficult question, but what is like the number one or number two like things that you want every Marylander to know right now as the election draws nearer is actually 41 days away. So, you know, what, what are some of the essential things you want people to know? Yeah, I think, again, the biggest piece, um, and I said this before, was if you've requested, if you've made a plan, stick to that plan, right? I, I'm afraid that we are going to see a lot of voters who just kind of are, you know, there's always people that want to test the system, but people who just are in a panic, their ballot hasn't come yet, and they are now deciding to go in person instead of trying to get in touch with us, get in touch with the local board and so forth. So you need to be clear on what 
the best option is for you. Um, and you need to work to ensure that if you want to vote by mail, that you are keeping up with everything, everything from making your request, making sure it was received, your ballots come to you and that it's returned on time. Um, I think outside of that, I mean, there's so many pieces. Um, yeah, that if you miss the voter registration deadline, again, same day registration um, on election day is new. We've used it for the first time during the primary. We know that in an election like this one, uh, there's going to be a lot of people who get activated during the peak of GOTV, right? The peak of get out the vote, and they would have missed the registration deadline. So making sure that the over, I think it's it's over 500,000 people in the state who are eligible to vote who aren't registered, that they know that even on the very last day, uh, they can walk into a vote center, any vote center in their jurisdiction um, and register and vote right there, right? And if for whatever reason, a judge is challenging your eligibility and so forth, making sure you don't walk away from that location without asking for a provisional ballot and obviously contacting a election protection line. But again, sticking to your plan, knowing that even on the very last day, you can still have your voice heard in the election process. Oh, and then signing, sign it. <laughs> so sign it, right? Sign your return envelope. Don't go through all of that and then have your vote rejected, right? Um, again, there's no guarantee the local board will reach out to you. There's thousands of ballots coming in, limited capacity. So if you want that vote to count before you drop it off in the box, check to make sure your signature is there. We have, uh, those are all of my questions, but thankfully there actually are a ton of questions from uh, people on Zoom and also on Facebook as well. So let's get straight into it. Um, the first question is actually for Dale. A person on Zoom is asking, after the U.S. Supreme Court dismantled the pre-clearance of provisions in the Voting Rights Act, what are the examples of discriminatory practices that have emerged as a result? Um, there were many. Um, one example I would um, point to is uh, a strict voter identification requirement in the state of Texas. This was the one that infamously let people vote with a concealed weapons permit, but not with a University of Texas student ID card issued by the state of Texas itself. Um, this was a law that had been blocked under the Voting Rights Act prior to the 2012 presidential election um, and wasn't in effect for that election. But the day the Supreme Court announced its decision in Shelby County, then Attorney General of Texas, Greg Abbott, now the governor, tweeted out, Texas voter ID is back. Um, and as a direct result of that decision, um, implemented the law, which was later found by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, one of the most conservative courts in the country, sitting on banc, which meant the entire court, all the judges, not just a three-judge panel, but every member of that court um, heard a challenge to that law under the Voting Rights Act and ruled that it had a discriminatory effect and was unlawful under a different part of the Voting Rights Act. So you might ask yourself, you might be asking, well, all's well that ends well, right? At least it got blocked eventually anyway. But that second ruling that I'm mentioning didn't come until 2016. Um, so multiple elections took place in Texas, including the 2014 midterm elections um, with a law that had been blocked under one part of the Voting Rights Act, and then later was found illegal under a different part of the Voting Rights Act. And that's, I think, part of why um, this law was so important important, it prevented these discriminatory laws from ever going into effect. I'll mention one other really briefly. 
um, a law in North Carolina that I could talk about forever, one that we challenged, which also had a strict voter identification requirement. Um, that's how the law started. But after the Supreme Court ruled in Shelby County versus Holder, um, that voter ID law was suddenly expanded by the North Carolina legislature to do other things. It cut a week of early voting. It eliminated same-day registration. It eliminated pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds where they could fill out a, driver, a, a, a voter registration application while at the DMV and automatically become registered to vote um, when they became of age. It got rid of a high school civics program to encourage um, voter registration and participation amongst um, high school students. Um, we sued. We eventually got that law wiped off the books in 2016. Um, it was also in effect during the 2014 midterms. And what we learned when we litigated that case is that while the Supreme Court was considering the Shelby County case and the legislature was deciding whether or not to pass that bill, how far to go with it, um, it didn't hold any public debates on it, um, but it collected information on the racial breakdown of people who vote early, on the racial breakdown of people who use same-day registration, on the racial breakdown of people who use absentee voting, the racial breakdown of people who have driver's licenses, and a racial breakdown of who has UNC student ID cards. And only after they gathered that data did what was a strict voter ID law become all these other things. When the data showed that Black voters, 70% of Black voters in North Carolina voted early, as compared to about half of white voters, only when they had that data did they decide to cut a week of early voting. When the data showed that Black voters are 20% of the, of the electorate in North Carolina, but over 33% of people who use same-day registration, only then did North Carolina decide we're going to get rid of same-day registration. And only after the, the North Carolina legislature collected data on the racial breakdown of driver's license holders and student ID card holders did they tailor their ID law to allow people to vote with some forms of ID, like a driver's license, but not others, like a student ID card or a public assistance ID card or a municipal employee ID card. All forms of ID that are issued by the government itself, all disproportionately held by Black voters in North Carolina, all of them banned for voting purposes. So that's just one example of you know, two examples of the kinds of laws that went into effect after the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder. It's really remarkable. And you know, we were fortunate to get a ruling from the Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit in North Carolina. They found that that law had, quote, targeted African-American voters with surgical precision. That's the word that Monica used earlier, that that word, uh, that, that phrase, surgical precision, um, has found its way into the lexicon used by federal courts to understand what's happening right now with voter suppression and its targeting of voters of color. Thank you, Dale. And we're actually gonna put up on the screen right now, um, just like a nice slide that, that just goes over some you know, key important dates and some key important voting information in the state of Maryland as we continue to, to ask some more questions. So don't let anybody go anywhere. Um, just, wanted to make sure, just wanted to make sure everybody would knew that. So actually uh, my next question is for Joanne. Um, we have another question from Zoom. Um, what, what is the disadvantage of casting a provisional ballot? And is that, um, and if, if it will be continued in the end? Well, sorry, if it will be counted in the end? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I think that is the disadvantage, right? The fact that it is counted later. Um, but I, I think 
provisional ballots are there as a protection, right? It's there to ensure that if you are eligible to vote, um, that you're able to have your voice heard in the process. Now, typically, if you're asked to cast a provisional uh, or use a provisional ballot, it's because uh, the state board, uh, the election officials there can't prove your eligibility, right? Or there's a judge that is questioning your eligibility. Um, but once they have gone through the canvas, so they have counted regular ballots, they will then go um, to the provisional ballots. Those are counted um, and included in election results. It's just, again, counted later on, but whoever you voted for, if you're found to be eligible, it will be accepted, right? It'll be counted. I think reasons why people are rejected, again, for getting to sign, um, registration wouldn't be a reason anymore, but let's say you're not a, a citizen or you're just ineligible for whatever reason, you're not a Maryland resident and so forth. But provisional ballots are counted. Uh, they're your best route in the case the local boards can't prove that you are eligible to vote. And then another question on that same topic, will Maryland's or county absentee ballots as soon as they are returned or will they wait until election day to start counting the absentee ballots? No, so Maryland, um, fortunately, we have moved up our canvas. Uh, our canvas begins next week, October 1st. Um, when your ballot comes in, it is quarantined for a day. Um, and from there, it's added to the pile of ballots. Um, I think it's important to remember there, we have thousands, I, I think we've hit a million requests that have come in so far. Um, so if that number increases, you know, local boards have a lot more uh, mail-in ballots to process. So even though it's been received, it may not be opened and counted until uh, a week or so later. I think, you know, the idea of celebrating, what do, we, what do we usually have? Watch nights, right? Or watch parties, election nights. We should we should just not plan for that here in Maryland. Uh, ballots will probably still um, be opened and um, counted even after November 3rd. But again, it's not immediately, but it is received, quarantined, and from there added to the ballots that are being counted. Thank you. And my next question is for Monica. For those of us who do know, um, uh, sorry, for those who us who do know, what do we do about it? And what can we do to help to communicate to those who don't and who aren't a part of our circle? Um, I'm going to assume that that question was about uh, um, people who are formerly incarcerated. Um, yeah, and that is a big issue um, because in 2016, the expectation was that 40,000 newly new voters would uh, be coming to the polls and that did not happen. Once that law was passed, the expectation was that, okay, the estimated amount of uh, formerly incarcerated persons who should be registering to vote, number about maybe 40,000, but uh, that number, nowhere near that number uh, showed up. In fact, it was uh, one of those low uh, voter turnout years. And the voter turnout, it gets lower and lower and lower and lower. So the, the, the challenge is information the propaganda to convince people that your vote don't count is wicked. I mean, all day, every day, it's something out there just convincing people, do not vote, do not vote, do not vote, do not vote. Your vote don't matter, your vote don't matter, your vote don't matter. So that to me is the, the bigger challenge is convincing people that their vote do count. The other challenge is something that uh, 
our organization, Merrill Justice Project and our Common Cause and um, Out for Justice, uh, trying to address where we put information out at um, parole and probation centers. You can put information out, public service announcements, letting people know that even if you are a returning citizen, that your vote counts. So getting the information to people where they are, whether that be at, um, in, in uh, I don't know, places of reentry centers where people go look for jobs, you can give them information there. Parole and probation centers, as I mentioned, you can give them information there. And we also need to make it incumbent upon the people who are in charge of successfully re-entering people is that they have a responsibility to share that information as well. Case managers have a responsibility to share that information as well. Somebody at the State Board of Elections had accused us of doing a get out the vote effort. This is not a get out the vote effort. This is a bipartisan effort, an effort that everybody should take part in. This is not a get out the vote effort. This is an effort to assure people's rights we have to get back to the Constitution for all of those strict constitutionalists, for all of those people who battle us in the courts. People like myself get armed with information so I can pass that on to people who can relate to me. Because everybody is not going to be relate relatable to everybody. Because I have had that experience, I can go in certain spaces and people will have a level of respect for me and listen to me a little more than they would somebody else. But to with information. And I also did want to expand that question a little bit uh, also is to see like, you know, for, you know, people who aren't, but also just like for other, other folks um, out there, what are some other ways to make sure that, you know, people, you know, know about voting and, and know, um, you know, make sure that they know how to exercise the right to vote? Actually get some foot soldiers, actually be on the ground, Pennsylvania North Avenue, Lexington Market, East Baltimore, West Baltimore, you have to go into those spaces where, um, where these people are because regardless of what a person's station is in life, they are eligible voters. And wherever you find eligible voters at, we should be there. Just like our dear Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, wherever issues are concerning women, it should be women there. And the same with uh, people who are returning citizens, wherever they at, because they are uh, registered voters or uh, eligible voters, we should be in all of those spaces, regardless of where it is. Narcotics Anonymous rooms, all of those spaces, because those are the people who are not voting. Those are the 64,000. I think it was a number that I heard today that there are 128 million people stayed away from the polls in 2016. 128 million people did not vote in 2016. And a large amount of that, those people are the disenfranchised um, voters that we need to um, spend a couple of bucks and try to get some um, campaigning towards that demographic that's staying away from the polls. Thank you, Monica. And my next question is Phil. Um, you know, when it, uh, a quote, well, question from, from Tim is, when, when we talk about voting rights under the umbrella of the ACLU, shouldn't we be talking about it from an unpartisan perspective? That's, we absolutely should be. And um, we do, we try to. I know it's 
hard sometimes when the president is out there um, actively undermining our, con our, like the public's confidence in elections. He seems to be trying to sow confusion and doubt about every aspect of the voting system, whether it's voting by mail or even drop boxes or, you know, the postal service or, you know, whether or not there are, you know, I mean, whether or not he actually won or lost the popular vote in 2016, he lost by almost 3 million votes. Um, it's tough, right? We, ha we can't, you know, shy away from calling out what we're seeing, which is a deliberate effort to undermine the institutions and machinery of our democracy and the public's faith in our democracy, which is really the key to the peaceful transition of power in this country. Um, at the same time, we have to make sure that our messaging and that our work is and continues to be nonpartisan. We are trying to help everyone vote. We're trying to make sure that everyone, every eligible voter has their ballots counted. Now, that being said, the ACLU is an organization of limited resources, and I approach my work with a racial justice lens, right? Um, there are communities that have historically been the targets of voter suppression, right? And efforts to maintain systems of inequality and white supremacy. And those are the communities that I'm most concerned about and I concentrate my efforts on. And I don't think that that is a non, I don't think that that's a partisan statement, right? That's a justice and equality statement. Um, so that's how I think we can talk about our work as both nonpartisan, but in a way that's consistent with um, our values and our concern for justice. So yeah, my next question is for Joanne. Um, what is the purpose slash logic uh, behind the requirement to fill an application uh, to fill an application and to be able to receive the mail-in slash absentee ballot. <laughs> I I wish I could speak on behalf of the governor. I um, there isn't one, right? Again, we I think we Common Cause, uh, the larger coalition, we all agree that it's un, it's an unnecessary hurdle. Um, we did it in the primary. Um, we believed that between June and now, there would have been enough time for the local boards to work out a lot of the small issues that we saw in the primary. Um, and that again, mailing, automatically mailing all active registered voters would have been uh, the best way forward. Um, unfortunately, the governor, um, you know, I don't remember his, I don't know his words, right? The governor, we've asked to meet multiple times, you know, to discuss this very issue. And um, he chose, you know, not to have conversations with advocates. So we um, don't know why. <laughs> um, we just have uh, worked within um, what we have to, to ensure that everyone knows that they need to make a request. Um, I think in his um, mind or um, and in others, right, sending a applications to everyone um, was the best way forward. It, it ensured that at least it got into everyone's hands, but we just know that that's not enough when people aren't even aware that, um, you know, these applications are on the way on the way or that this envelope with this little purple stripe, you know, what it is to begin with and how to go about returning it. So we don't know. <laughs> No, totally understand. Um, and actually, my, my next question, uh, another question for you, Joanne. Um, the person asked, I don't know what state it is that heard it, but at the time of the primaries that people are in line 
um, at closing of the polls, they were told they couldn't vote. Isn't this illegal or does it depend on state laws? I want to say it depends on, it might depend on state law. Um, no, it, it shouldn't, right? So if it's always been, if you are in line when your poll is closing, um, and that's regardless of the time. So Maryland, it's been 8 p.m., some states it's 7 p.m. and so forth. If you are online by that time, uh, you are eligible to vote. You have the right to vote. Um, in Maryland, if you get online by 8 p.m., usually there's a judge that will walk the line and the, the last person will receive you know, a red ticket, um, ensuring that you are, you know, you, you're guaranteed a vote. Even if it's midnight and there's still a line there, you'll be able to get in. Um, it is the same for all states. Again, it's just the time uh, that varies. But if you're in line, stay in line. If they give you any issues, call an election protection hotline. Thank you. And uh, Dale, I have another question for you. Um, and the, the questioner asked, will Bloomberg pay the court fines or the court fees for people with felony convictions in Florida. Um, oh. If you know, you know, speak on it. If you don't, I totally understand. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, that's that's the next move, right? Is to try to help people um, pay off their fines and fees. Um, the reality is, is it's a it's a lot of money, right? When you have over a million people, right, who are disenfranchised. Um, because of a felony conviction, um, and you know they owe anywhere from, on average, five hundred to a few thousand dollars. I mean, you do the math, right? And we're in the billions here, right? Um, I read that today that Michael Bloomberg raised fourteen million dollars, which is great. That's a lot of money, you know. Um, uh, Michael Jordan put up a million dollars of his own money, and I kind of wonder why Mike Bloomberg, who's a billionaire, can't do the same thing. Why he's out there raising money for it, you know, that's great. I'm glad he did it, but um, I think he should put some skin in the game. Well said. Um, and my last question is, you know, it's a free for all. Anyone can answer it. Um, but the question is, is um, how is voter suppression during the very close Stacey Abrams gubernatorial race different than what we are experiencing now at the national level, if it is at all? I don't really know a whole, whole lot about it, but just for what little bit I do know, I would say that the difference is when it comes to people like Kathleen, who was the uh, person who decided the Florida Chad or no Chad votes between Gore and Bush. I think those people who are in charge of our state board of elections play a more crucial role than what we think. And when we get down to close elections like that, we get to see how much power they really have. So we need to pay close attention to our state board of elections and what they're doing and what they're not doing and really keep them close because the guy Kemp, he was, I think he served in several capacities. I think he was uh, the governor and then he was able to make certain choices in terms of uh, the board of elections and what they did and how they did it. So I think um, I think that board of elections had a lot to do with how that stuff went down in Georgia concerning um, Stacey Abrams, which uh, again, just brings to mind Florida and Kathleen and that state board of elections and them deciding what votes they would count, what had the chads, which is a very funny word. I love the word chads. 
I love the word hanging chads. I think it's funny as hell because I never knew what a chad was or a hanging chad. So every time I think about it, historically, I just crack up. You know what I mean? Because I didn't get no sleep that night. And for the whole, the rest of the a few months, it was all about the damn chads. So, um, yeah, I think we need to pay uh, a close attention to the state board of elections and uh, the citizens need to be more involved because as our country become divided and as uh, people in uh, judgeships aim to continue to suppress the votes, we really have to uh, pay close attention because we need every advantage that we can to make sure that everybody can vote because these guys are locked and loaded and have been since damn 1864. You know what I mean? All right. I'm going to mute myself. That's all I know. I was going to chime in too. I mean, it's hard to keep up with everything in Georgia. Like when we say voter suppression is running rampant, I it it's, it lives in Georgia, I'd say. Um, I think maybe one thing that has changed, I believe Georgia now has new uh, voting machines. Um, I don't know if they were in place um, during Stacey Abrams' election. Um, so I think that's one additional piece. What we saw in the primary is them not um, ensuring that there were paper ballots in place um, and so forth. So I think that's the one additional hurdle now, right? This um, you know election security issue now uh, that's at the heart of uh, Georgia's elections as well. Thank y'all so much for that. Oh my gosh, it was such a wealth of information uh, from national politics, state politics on a whole heap of, of different angles to the voting rights issue. Um, you know, it, it has truly evolved over the years and this year is gonna be a very critical election. Um, no matter how you slice it, we don't care how you vote or who you vote for, as long as you vote, please y'all, it's important. Um, up on the screen, we have some of our um, uh, election empowerment information. If you have any, any, any other questions about voting, the deadlines, when to vote, where the um, early voting centers, all the information, please visit our website, aclu-mv.org slash voter empowerment. And then I wanted to kick it off to Amy just to help us close it all out. Thank you, Amber. Um... I'll also uh, tell you a little bit about the election protection hotline, which is up there 443-399-3229. Um, the election protection hotline is open now and it will be open until um, 8 p.m. on election uh, night, November 3rd. So feel free to call. Uh, you may have to leave a message um, or send a text. Uh, but somebody will get back to you usually within a day or two and you can ask questions there you can um, if you have concerns or worries or anything please um, feel free to reach out to our election protection hotline and we do like I said uh, provide individualized assistance through through um, the hotline um, and with that um, I just want to again thank um, Amber Taylor our host our incredible uh, panel, uh, Dale Ho from the ACLU National Office, Joanne Antoine from Common Cause, and of course, Monica Cooper, who's always keeping us on the edge of tears and laughter. Um, and for everybody behind the scenes at the ACLU of Maryland, we really appreciate everyone who um, stuck in for the whole uh, hour and a half and everyone who was tuning in later to watch on Facebook. So thank you again. Have a great evening. Good night, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to leave a review and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. 
This show was recorded on Piscataway Native American land. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time.